You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Which patients with severe hearing loss might benefit more from cochlear implants rather than hearing aids? Joining us to discuss cochlear implants and hearing restoration surgery is Dr. Michael Ruckenstein, Professor and Vice Chairman of the Department of Otorhinolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Penn Medicine, where he directs the Center for Implantable Hearing Devices. Dr. Ruckenstein, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Maybe we should start with just a basic question about prevalence. How common is hearing loss in the United States? Well, it depends on how you define hearing loss. Of course, as you age, everybody gets some hearing loss. So in that sense, if you're over 55 or so, there's a very strong chance you have some level of hearing loss. Now, how many people need aidable hearing is a different question. And of course, that too is subjective. Uh Uh-huh because there are many patients out there who, as you know, feel they're here fine, but their families are up in arms because they always feel they're repeating things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's a very common problem, and it affects most, if not all of us, as we age. So the decision to use some type of device or to take some intervention really is a lifestyle, personal choice type of situation? Exactly. The hearing aid, it's not like uh, having a cancer where mm-hmm. you say as a physician, we, well, we need to intervene or mm-hmm. it's a, a life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. Hearing aids are a lifestyle decision in the sense that anybody with hearing loss is technically eligible for a hearing aid, but only a subset of those will feel the need to proceed with that. And it's really up to the patient and their family, once the hearing loss has been diagnosed, to decide whether they should take that step towards a hearing aid. I know, at least in my practice as an internist, I think usually about older people. Do you see the demographics shifting at all with the use of iPods and some of the devices that are out there now? Well, we've been warned that that's going to happen. Probably the exposure to iPods are not long enough yet to document any really morbid level of hearing loss from them. This is something we'll only see as an additive effect when people are older. So much like the worker of the 1940s would have some noise-induced hearing loss and then do okay until they hit their 60s when the superposed aging process took place, we'll probably see a similar thing with the personal music machines and devices that patients will do fine, but as they hit their 60s, they'll have a little bit more hearing loss than one would expect them to have. And so time will tell. Exactly. But, you know, iPods have only been around a decade or two. It takes a much longer for a, the cumulative effect of noise to express itself in, in a way that would affect their functioning. We may be able to measure the change, but they may not perceive it. Well, let's shift a little bit now and talk a little about cochlear implants. What exactly is a cochlear implant and who might be a candidate for this type of intervention? Not to overstate things, but a cochlear implant is really a miracle of modern medicine. And I say that as somebody who was very vested in the science of the devices. And when I first heard people refer to them as that, I said, oh, that's just people marketing the devices. It's not really that true. But as Mm -hmm. I started treating patients, I said, you know, that really is true. It's the only sense that we can restore. And it restores incredible quality of life to people who are otherwise very compromised. 
So how does it work? It's basically a device with multiple electrodes on it that we insert into the inner ear directly. It bypasses the inner ear, therefore, and stimulates the cochlear nerve fibers directly, bypassing the, the defective inner ear. And even if the nerve fibers are somewhat damaged too, there's such a redundancy of nerve fibers in the inner ear that most, if not all, patients with hearing loss, with a few exceptions, would benefit from a cochlear implant. So while there is the redundancy of afferent nerve fibers in the cochlear is so high that even if you have death of a significant proportion of them, there's usually plenty left to stimulate. So this is certainly not an amplification device. This no, is it's a- much more, and that's the beauty of it. It provides a relatively specific stimulus, and we haven't worked all that out yet because there is current leaking on them. So whereas in the true cochlea, you get a very, very precise stimulus to a particular area, you can't get that same exact precision with an electrical stimulus because this current spreads. But you still provide a level of clarity with a cochlear implant that is unique to this type of device. And it does restore hearing. Unquestionably, the data is huge and overwhelming and voluminous that these patients do extremely well. Now, of course, there's variability in their functioning, but the majority of patients can use a telephone, can conduct uh, normal conversations, can attend to all public activities. Even hear their spouses, huh? Oh, especially hear their spouses, (laughs) especially hear their spouses. Where it falls down is in music and more complex stimuli. We haven't gotten to the point yet where they're really providing that level of complexity, but they will. Mm -hmm. They will. Incredible. Now, it sounds like you obviously need to have some functioning cochlear nerve fibers. Could I make the assumption then that someone who is born deaf likely is not a candidate for this type of... No, no, just the opposite. Ah, okay. But most people who are born deaf are born deaf from inner ear problems, inner ear malformations, genetic defects, etc. Very, very few of the hearing deficits are focused on the cochlear nerve. There is an entity of cochlear nerve aplasia, but it's very rare. So even for people who've been born deaf who've never heard, this is a very viable option, it sounds like. But the key is the following, and this is why universal hearing screening has been so important and even have efforts now to expand that to a more detailed process. There is a window of opportunity, and it's pretty clear that the earlier you're implanted, the better you are. Mm-hmm. In other words, the shorter the duration of the deafness, the better off you are. And in kids, the effort is to identify them very early and place them very early in their lives. Now, if you're dealing with an adult who comes into you and has never acquired speech and has been deaf for 20 to 30 years, they will not be good performers with a cochlear implant. They have not developed the auditory pathways required for audition to take place. So their brains have been remapped and their cortices are now dedicated to other functioning. And so there is a window of opportunity. But the window is fairly broad. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me discussing cochlear implants and hearing restoration surgery is Dr. Michael Ruckenstein, professor and vice chairman of the Department of Otorhinolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Penn Medicine, where he is the director of the Center for Implantable Hearing Devices. Dr. Reckenstein, can you take me through some of the nuts and bolts? What's the evaluation? How's the surgery done? What's the follow-up? Now, the evaluation is somewhat different in children and adults. 
So in children, the hearing loss has been identified usually early on in life. Depending on the severity, usually they'll go through a trial of hearing aids, hearing aid amplification. And then subsequently, if that fails or it's felt not to be, maybe perhaps not failing, but not optimal, they'll be referred for cochlear implant assessment, which in a pediatric patient will incorporate hearing testing. And again, often because these children are babies, you'll need some sort of evoked potential type test, like an ABR, together with an otoacoustic emission type test. They'll have radiologic studies because a number of children have inner ear malformations that will affect the way the implant will be placed and will function. They'll also have some social assessments to make sure their living environments and school environments will be able to support them with a cochlear implant. And then they'll go through the surgery. The surgery itself is not particularly complicated. It's gotten quite a bit easier over time as the devices have become finer and we've refined our techniques. They'll usually be turned on between two and four weeks after the implant. And then they'll require repeated programming. And depending on how severe their onset was, in other words, were they born deaf or knew very quickly deaf at birth, they'll likely see speech therapy and maybe perhaps teachers for the deaf to help them with their speech development. And they'll also be given special attention at schools for this purpose. So they get a more detailed and more intense long-term post-operative rehabilitation. Many of them are also being considered for bilateral implantation as well. Now, an adult is a slightly different story. It's more straightforward. Most adults who get cochlear implants have had hearing and then lose it. So they've had speech and developed speech. They know what sound is supposed to sound like. They've gone through the majority of their education. And so with them, it's more of a matter of restoring something they've had rather than giving them something new that they've never had. So in them, they would, again, make sure they have a significant level of hearing loss with a basic audiogram or hearing test. Now, many people feel that they have to have complete hearing loss. That's not true at all. They have to be able to understand about 50% or less of the spoken words given to them during a variety of different types of hearing tests to qualify for a cochlear implant, which Mm -hmm. means they would do better with a cochlear implant than with a hearing aid. So that's what the data shows us. Less than 50%. Less than about 50% of a speech discrimination type test. And there are various ones out there that are used in the assessment. So they do not have to be completely deaf, but they have to be performing poorly with hearing aids and have this level of a, a severe, a moderate to severe to profound hearing loss they would undergo then usually a CT scan. Some people would also get an MRI to make sure that the cochleas are patent, the mastoids are healthy, we can place the implant well. The surgery is generally done as an outpatient. It takes me now at my stage about 45 minutes to an hour to do the surgery. They're minimal to no complications. We check them a week after to make sure everything's healing nicely. And then they get turned on about two to four weeks after the implant. And they have the first few months, they have very regular appointments, and then it spaces out to one every six months or so unless there's a problem with the device. Very interesting. A little more straightforward in adults and... Much more straightforward because, Mm -hmm. of course, they can communicate back to you. They can Mm -hmm. imagine just the simple programming process because the audiologists really do the heavy work in that, and they have to program the devices. And so an adult can tell you when they hear, when they don't hear, whether it sounds good or bad, if you're dealing with a two-year-old or a one-year-old, it's very hard to know that. Absolutely. So you have to derive other techniques in order to 
indirectly obtain this information. So it's a, the pediatric side is a much more involved level of programming. And it sounds like the devices themselves are going through development and upgrades. And Are there basic differences in types of cochlear implants? No. Right now, the three devices on the market, well, one is in recall now, but we hope to have that one back soon. The three devices are very similar. Mm -hmm. They differ somewhat in their strategies and their design, but they're more similar than they are dissimilar. Really, it comes down to small issues of patient preference as to which device you're going to use. They all work well. They do evolve, but most of the evolution is in the software, and that can be upgraded on the external component. They don't need new electrodes in order to benefit from many of the upgrades. And the upgrades, although significant, have become less dramatic over time. More subtle refinements. More subtle refinement than they are sort of, wow, this is an amazing difference. So waiting for the technology to evolve is not a good strategy. A, your results will be poor the longer you're deaf. Mm -hmm. And B, many of the upgrades can occur on the processor, which is external. And C, even the upgrades are subtle. And so patients would do well not to say, oh, this is an evolving technology. It is an evolving technology, but it's also mature. So if you're a candidate, don't delay. Go ahead and have it done. Unless there's a medical contraindication to having the surgery, for example, an older patient, and we've put them in in many PA centers, we put them in in patients who are 90 or over. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you have to remember in the elderly population, as you would know, better than most, you're not only dealing with the patient, you're dealing with their caregivers. Sure, absolutely. Now, if a patient can't hear, the caregiver is worried. They're worried something will happen to them. They can't call them on the phone. They have to go visit them. They're worried about them going out and running into an accident, not hearing a car coming or a siren or something like that. This restores a tremendous autonomy to the older patient who is is severely hearing impaired. And that's a benefit both to the patient and to the caregiver. But, of course, if there's significant dementia or other problems, then we can't proceed with that because they won't be able to handle the device. Right. Well, it certainly can change uh, not just the patient, as you say, but whole families. And this sounds like a very exciting area and a wonderful, as you say, miracle or breakthrough. Well, I very much want to thank Dr. Michael Ruckenstein, Director of the Center for Implantable Hearing Devices at Penn Medicine, for outlining for us some of the indications and procedures around cochlear implants, and he's also told us how efficacious they are, maybe some refinements in the future for music and more sophisticated sounds, but really devices that can restore a great deal of quality of life and functionality to our patients. Dr. Reckenstein, thank you so much for being our guest on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.